Hello and welcome to the latest weekly investment trust podcast from Moneymakers. I'm Jonathan Davis and as usual I'm joined by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Simon, it's been a week where the market's actually been quite positive again. It paused last week, I remember us discussing that, but there's been uh, some improvement this week. Is that what's been happening and what's been going on in the investment trust sector in particular? So uh, you're absolutely right. Last week uh, was a more difficult week for markets, and, and this week started off quite brightly. So the market was up the first three days of the week. It's, we've seen a bit of a sell-off the last few, but we should end up uh, on the week. And it looks like it's been a better week for investment trust companies, actually. We've seen the sector average discount, which started the week about 9 9.5%, uh, narrow into 7 to 7.5%. So that uh, is reasonably positive. Um, it's certainly been a good week for private equity funds and some of the UK commercial property funds, um, they've seen their discounts narrow. I think we should always just caution a little bit on that because sometimes discounts can narrow because share prices rise, but equally, uh, we can see NAVs fall to meet them coming in the other direction. But in contrast, uh, some of the debt funds and some of the renewable funds have sold off a little bit this week. They've seen their share prices fall. But uh, overall, I think the investment trust sector is still performing quite well. Um, it's down 12% so far this year, and that compares to about 21%, a fall of 21% for the FTSE All Share Index. So one of the big stories this week has been around what's happening in the energy markets. Uh, you mentioned the renewables, and they've been uh, hit partly because of what's happening to power prices, electricity prices, and so on. That's affecting them. But also, of course, the ongoing uh, drama in the oil market, where the oil price remains very low. And this week, we saw something that we haven't seen some say since the Second World War, or even earlier, that uh, Shell has cut its dividend, which is a, a remarkable thing for those of us who've been following the markets for many decades. That's something that doesn't normally happen. So what's been going on? That has obviously a lot of implications for the investment trust sector and for equity income trusts, which we've talked about uh, already several times. But how does this latest Shell news, how has that been taken by the market? And what does it mean for the investment trust sectors? Well, we knew it was going to be a big week for uh, equity income uh, investors. Uh, BP at the start of the week announced that they were going to maintain uh, their quarterly dividend, despite the fact their profits were down uh, significantly. Um, so all eyes were on Shell. And, and as you say, they, they cut their dividend by two thirds. So that is a significant fall. And, and Shell were a large proportion of the whole UK market in terms of the amount of dividends they've been paying out. So for those investment trust companies that had relied on Shell to do uh, the heavy lifting in terms of their, the, the revenue that was generated every year, that's, that's put them in a difficult position. Um, it, it puts additional pressure on them to uh, either find different sources of income, or maybe they have to uh, think again in terms of their strategy. And, and this is where revenue reserves that we have talked about before kind of might come into their own that many investment trusts have these revenue reserves and can use them to uh, maintain their own dividends if required. I mean, you very helpfully published a table, which we'll uh, include on the website uh, that goes with this uh, podcast uh, earlier this week. And I'm just looking down some of the names which have a significant holding in, uh, in Shell. So, for example, we've got Merchants, 6.1%, uh, JP Morgan Elect Managed Income, 6%, JP Morgan Clubhouse, 7.1%, Aurora, 6.4, BlackRock Energy, 5.8, and so on. So these are quite significant holdings by some of these uh, investment trusts, obviously mainly in the equity income sector, but not just there, I believe. 
So there'll be some of the global players. So I think in that table you refer to, we've got Scottish Investment Trust. It's a smaller position, but I think they've got a position in Shell. Please correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, you've got the table in front of you. But we've also got some of the specialist mandates. The uh, BlackRock Energy and Resources Income uh, will have a holding in it as well, I believe. Yes, that's right. And uh, well, Temple Bar, of course, we talked about them last week. They had a significant holding in that, and they've performed very poorly. We might also at this point highlight a couple of the uh, investment trusts that actually don't own Shell. One that I know a fair deal about is uh, Troy Income and Growth, for example. They made a virtue earlier this year of saying that they, they were cutting back on the most high-yielding stocks in the, uh, in the market uh, because they were concerned about the sustainability of the dividend. Uh, they've been proved right to that extent. Uh, Invesco Income Growth, I've noticed, and uh, Perpetual Income and Growth, Schroeder Income Growth. Uh, all of those uh, trusts had no holdings in Shell at all. So it's a, as always, it's a mixed picture, which is, I guess you could also argue one of the strengths of the investment trust sector, you get, you get a lot of different horses in the stable, if you like. And that's absolutely right. And I, what you must remember as well with those UK equity income mandates, most, not all, but most are allowed to invest up to 20% of their portfolio overseas. By doing that, they can still qualify as being UK equity income mandates. And there are a number that absolutely take that uh, ability up. Uh, and so that instead of owning uh, a BP or Shell, they're in a, a Total or Chevron or whatever it might be, because they want that diversification. They don't want to be entirely reliant on actually a very narrow sources in the UK market in terms of dividend payers. OK, so that's something to, to bear in mind. What, just in general terms, the trusts have been worst affected by the, the Shell uh, announcement. Have they been the ones that have suffered more this week than others? Or is it actually the market already anticipated this? I don't think it had, did it? I mean, obviously, we all recognise that there was a risk that Shell or indeed BP could, could cut their dividend this week. So I think it was very much on the agenda. In terms of how the actual investment trusts have responded to that, it will obviously vary to, to a greater or lesser extent. But I still think uh, if you look at the, the way the investment trusts are priced at the moment and look at those that are trading on premiums, of which there are a number, then I think it's on the expectation that investment trust, your point you made earlier, are very well positioned to use any different number of levers, including revenue reserves, um, including being able to invest an element overseas or even to pay out an element of, of capital as income, but to use any of these levers in order to sustain and even to continue to grow their, their dividends. If you look at City of London Investment Trust, which is the, the bellwether uh, UK equity income name with this tremendous record of 53 consecutive years, it's still trading out on a nice premium. So despite it will have a holding in Shell, so unaffected by this week's news. While we're on that subject of City of London, I did notice one other thing this week which struck me as interesting. It's a little bit of a footnote rather than anything else, but it might be worth just having a very quick comment from you on that, which is that they said that they had refinanced some debt. Uh, they had some fixed debt, which was a, on a very high coupon, I believe. Right? They were paying a very high rate of interest. And of course, this has been one of the problems that some investment trusts have had, which they have a kind of legacy of, fixed uh, borrowing that they took out when interest rates were much higher and they thought they were getting a good deal at the time. Is that still a problem across the sector or is this very much the kind of last of the debt issues that are being refinanced, if you like? There are one or two investment trusts that do have these long-term debentures on, frankly, eye-watering coupon levels, which date back to the 1990s. I mean, most of them have either been uh, repaid now or, or come to the end of their life and, and uh, therefore just, just been uh, redeemed. But one or two have um, them still in existence. But, you know, in the case of uh, someone like City of London, um, Investment Trust is such a large investment trust now that this is just a drop in the ocean, really, 
in comparison with the other sources of financing that they had. So most investment trusts have, have taken the opportunity to, to repay these things uh, over the years. So if we just move a broader picture away from Shell BP uh, and just look at the general outlook for dividends, obviously we've had not only had a lot of companies coming out and reporting what they're going to do with the dividends, we've also had a lot of investment trusts coming up and reporting how that's affected them. One that was noticeable this year was, uh, this week, I'm sorry, was Henderson High Income. Now that's obviously a different kind of income trust. It invests in uh, bonds as well as uh, equities. What was their story and how are funds that are in the same kind of high income space as Henderson High Income? How have they been uh, affected and what are they saying about the outlook? Well, David Smith, who's the manager of Henderson High Income, gave a, a really interesting update this week and just talked about the whole kind of marketplace. Now, of course, you're right. He can and he does invest in a, in a degree of bonds, which gives him a, a bit more flexibility. And the yield on that fund, which is probably about 7% at the moment, reflects that. But what he talked about was the, the outlook for the UK market, indeed, what we've just been discussing. And, and he suggested that the UK marketplace could see up to 50% dividend cuts. However, with Henderson High... Um, he presented the argument and, and pretty convincingly that they were well placed really to get through uh, those cuts. And he pointed out the fact that they can invest and they do invest in bonds. They've also invested in alternative asset classes. They can also uh, make, do some option writing. They've uh, invested in some very defensive companies in the pharmaceutical and utilities areas. Um, and at the end of the day, this, this whole point about revenue reserves, their revenue reserves are, are sitting at 85% of their annual dividend level. So, you know, there's no no guarantees in life, as we all know, but they would seem to be well placed in order to continue to pay out that that dividend, given all those uh, levers available to the manager. I mean, 7% is an extraordinary yield to be able to sustain in this kind of uh, market environment where interest rates are pretty much close to zero and uh, with all this drama going on. Has that been reflected in the performance of the shares of the Henderson High Income? And obviously, the whole point about revenue reserves is you can afford to sit through or you, you hope you can sit through a crisis like this and you'll get your dividend every year and then the share price may have fallen, but then it will come back in due course as the world normalizes. But have they been uh, excessively damaged by uh, having such a high yield and in this particular market? Not to date, I think, is the answer. So if you look at their performance record in NAV terms, um, and uh, certainly the last time I looked at it, it bore uh, a reasonable comparison with its largest stablemate, the aforementioned City of London Investment Trust. So in NAV total return over the long term. So it's a different portfolio. It's got different elements to it. You could argue that City of London is kind of more plain vanilla and actually has a lower uh, yield as a, as a result. But in terms of the actual total return that investors are getting, it's not uh, substantially. It hasn't been substantially different over the long term to a kind of plain vanilla UK equity income fund such as the City of London. So discounts in uh, investment trusts are largely driven by supply and demand. Given the background that we've been talking about for the outlook for dividends, and particularly in the equity income sector, what's been happening on the supply and demand side? Are you seeing in the market a lot of demand for equity income trusts at the moment because of their this ability to smooth their dividends? Uh, and are you also seeing, uh, are you also seeing though, some new supply coming from existing trusts? What's the, what's the pattern of supply and demand at the moment? So we are seeing strong demand for uh, equity income type mandates uh, in the investment trust sector. Um, I think clearly there is a need for income out there. And I think dividend certainty and sustainability is at the top of a lot of investors' uh, wish lists at the moment. So investment trust companies can really come into their own 
in this respect because of their history, their revenue reserves, and so on and so forth. And what that's resulted in is actually um, a number of the, the larger flagship equity income investment trusts trade on very strong ratings to the point where they've been able to issue shares again on, on premium ratings. So funds such as Finsbury Growth and Income is managed by Nick Train, City of London Investment Trust and uh, Merchants Investment Trust as well. So all uh, funds very much in demand at the moment. Okay, so they, they've all suffered share price declines, but in relative terms, they're doing better and their discounts, as you say, are, or their premium rather, are, are persisting. Okay, so let's broaden out again from equities back into those alternative asset sectors that you talked about. And we've heard a lot more this week from uh, property investment trusts and renewable energy investment trusts. Can you tell us, first of all, about the property? What else have we learned this week that we didn't know before about the outlook for rents and therefore for dividends and performance uh, from the property sector this week? Well, what we've seen over the last few weeks uh, is a a number of property funds uh, having to cut or suspend their dividends and warn that valuations uh, would be lower. And actually, that's the pattern that's continued this this last week. So we've seen reductions in dividends from uh, UK uh, commercial property, which is one of the larger uh, funds in the sector. We've also seen Picton property uh, reduce its quarterly dividend uh, down by 70%. So the, you know that pattern continues. Um, it is a difficult area of the marketplace. Um, but equally, you know, there are some some good signs as well. So, for instance, a more, much more specialist mandate, supermarket income REIT announced uh, it was looking to raise uh, £100 million on a premium rating. Uh, and actually, they, they saw such strong demand, they've actually raised an additional 40, so 140 in, in total. So as an asset class, there is still demand for it, though I just think people have been very discerning which aspects of property they look to invest in at the moment. And there's another property investment trust, which is... Uh almost a sort of grandfather of the sector in a way, uh, called TR Property. I've, I've been tracking that one since at least the 1990s. It used to be managed by a, a gentleman called uh, Chris Turner, now ma- managed by his successor. Uh, they also reported this week, and uh, they've got a very good uh, long-term track record, have they not? They have indeed. So Marcus Fair Mudge uh, has been, um, well, he's been the manager of TR Property for a number of years, but you say he's been working on it for even longer and they have a, a, an excellent track record. And just to be clear, they, they do have a small element of the portfolio that's invested directly into uh, property, so it's about 8% at the moment. But the rest of the portfolio is actually invested into property shares, so in other words, listed property companies. And it's split between uh, Europe and the UK, so about 60% in Europe and about a third in the, in the UK. And uh, it has a very good long-term track record. Clearly, it's not been uh, immune from the, the, the sell-off and the difficult conditions that property in general finds itself at the moment. But the manager is, uh, and in fact, he's not just him on his own. He has a very well-resourced team. He's part of the BMO Asset Management uh, Empire. But he's, he is very careful about where his capital is deployed within the property sector. So he's favoured more recently industrials and German residential property. He's avoiding European shopping centres for reasons I think we can all understand. He's been a big fan of the supermarket income REIT, actually. But one of the areas that hasn't worked out for him is is student housing. I think he felt that that would prove to be uh, defensive. Uh, And again, as I'm sure people can appreciate, most of these funds uh, in the student housing area uh, are now seeing uh, dividend cuts or suspensions as obviously students uh, are not being able to pay their rents for a period of time. But he, he always has excellent insights into the property 
sector. And if people do get a chance to hear an update from him or read some of his thoughts and policy, it's well worth a few minutes of your time. Okay, so now let's move on to the another sector we've mentioned already, which is the renewable energy sector. Now, this is a uh, been very popular in, in recent years, precisely because of uh, what appeared to be the ability to pay above market dividend yields by investing in solar power and wind power and so on, and electricity generation from all sorts of different sources. Been very popular sector, grown quite fast, issued a lot of shares, but uh, this particular crisis has not been quite so good for them as it has been for some other sectors, or perhaps it's been worse for them than some other sectors, you might say. But what's been the experience here? Again, we've heard from a couple of them this week, I know, Green Coat UK Wind and uh, Bluefield Solar Income Fund. Uh, what's, what's been happening to them through this particular period? And what are they saying at the moment? So the issue on the infrastructure, on the renewable energy infrastructure plays, and you're right, it's been a fascinating, very interesting area of the marketplace, huge amount of growth, and the different types of uh, infrastructure plays within that. So we've seen wind farms, we've seen solar farms, and a variety of other elements as well. Um, but to be fair, it is still trading very well. It, they, most of these funds are still trading on, on, on premium ratings. They have come off a little bit. Some people have observed that they, the price has got a little bit ahead of themselves. And you can see the attraction in as much as that they're averaging uh, between about 5 and 6% yields at the moment, which, uh, again, is very attractive in this low interest rate environment. Um, what we've seen this week was an update from Bluefield Solar Income. Uh, which said its uh, net asset value was down 6% in the first quarter of this year. And that was uh, a reflection of the falling power prices. And this is a very important element of this whole area. Their NAVs, to a greater or lesser extent, reflect energy prices. And, and as we can all appreciate at the moment, energy prices are lower and trending lower. And that does have implications uh, for their NAVs. However, it is important to note that in the case of Bluefield, they've confirmed that they are um, happy with their, their dividend target. Uh, and that's been a pattern that we've seen across this subsector so far, that we haven't seen any dividend cuts. In fact, all the funds to date have come out and reaffirmed uh, their ability to, to maintain their dividends, because ultimately, many of them have either subsidies in terms of their revenue that, that, that comes in, or they've signed a long-term power agreements. In other words, they've got great visibility on their earnings streams for any number of years. So whereas the, perhaps you could argue that the longer term attraction of the, of the asset class is lessened by what's going on in terms of the energy market, they are still very attractive uh, yield companies uh, to many people's minds. I mean, I think it's fair to say without going into uh, too much technical detail about this, because they are mostly invested in long-term contracts and long-term uh, arrangements with uh, suppliers of energy, whether that's wind farms or solar farms, that it's very much, uh, you could come up with a lot of different numbers, basically by discounting the future in a long way into the future. It all depends how much kind of discount you put into there and whether or not they're on fixed contracts or on variable price contracts. So if the power price decline is sustained for more than a short period of time, it will have an impact on the value of their NAVs, will it not? Or am I wrong about that? I might have uh, misunderstood the, uh, the dynamics of valuing these uh, long-term infrastructure uh, or renewable energy companies. But is that the right way to think about it? So as the, as the power curve weakens or comes off, it has an impact now in terms of the NAV because it's, uh, the NAV is calculated on a, it's marked a model, so it looks at long-term uh, cash flows. But in terms of the actual cash into the vehicles, does it impact in the here and now? In most cases, no is the answer, but it will impact out future cash flows. 
So this is this is the reason why at the moment the the kind of short to medium term outlook for the the dividends on in this subsector are, are pretty reasonable, but it's on a longer term view that it becomes more of an issue because a number of them have subsidies that will last a number of years or they've signed agreements so they know what their revenue is going to be for a number of years, but it's what happens you know ten years down the track that's more the point. And perhaps we should just explain one other point, which is to do with what happens if you if you buy one of these things in the open market, you have to pay a premium. So the yield you're getting on that is the stated yield. That's the yield you'd read about in the in evaluation or in the newspaper. Is, is that right? And uh, just to be clear, that it's not based on the NAV. It's based, the yield is based on the current share price rather than on the NAV. So if you can actually buy the shares at NAV, you'd get a slightly higher yield than if you buy it on a premium. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And it's, when you see the yields quoted in the, in the back of the papers or online, wherever you may look at it, it's invariably on a historical yield basis. So it's looking at what they've, part, they've paid out in the previous 12 months, uh, which ordinarily is fine. But clearly, if we've had dividend cuts or suspensions, as we have, not in this area, but across the wider marketplace, might be a bit more of an issue. So just be a bit careful on that. But yes, it's based on the share price and invariably it's on a historical basis. Very good. OK, well, on that note, I think we should come to a close, uh, Simon. It has been a very interesting week. A lot of more information, as you say. And uh, we all look forward. We've gone into a new month. We've gone into May. The market has stabilized, thank goodness. I read somewhere that the fall in certainly the US stock market, the pace of it has been the quickest decline of 20% that we've seen since the Great Depression. Well, it's all bounced back a bit. So there are some reasons for optimism. But um, I don't know about you, but I'm still uh, looking ahead with a fair degree of caution, because we're still there's still a lot of uncertainty about there about we can see that there's going to be some relaxation of the lockdown in certain countries at certain phased way, but it's still going to be a long haul. I think we're all clear about that. So um, the investment trust sector is down, as you said, this year, but less than the oil share market. So I guess we're still waiting to see, get more information every week, we get more certainty. But would you describe your own outlook here? Are you, are you cautious? Are you wildly bullish or are you wildly bearish? Or perhaps you prefer not to say at this stage? Well, I, I put myself in the uh, cautious camp, to be honest. I mean, uh, I think as the weeks and months go by, it'll become clearer how reality uh, returns. What does normal look like? What's the new normal look like? And how are companies able to, to bounce back? And, and indeed, can they? I think you'll find that there are some that will really struggle. Um, and it's often the second order uh, impact that are difficult to see um, at the moment of a crisis. And obviously, again, as the weeks and months pass, we'll, we'll get a better feel for that. So in terms of markets, I'd still expect markets to be choppy and volatile and uh, fascinating, as always. Simon, thank you. I look forward to speaking again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.